0: Those Space People, a podcast series of casual cosmic conversations with people working on exciting space projects. A quick disclaimer, the views expressed by the guest and the host, which is me, are solely personal and do not reflect the position of their employers. Today we have Deepika Jaikodi. Deepika is a space lawyer and she currently works with Airbus as a commercial contracts and bid manager. Deepika is currently based in the Netherlands, And I'm very excited to this conversation with you, Deepika. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Rachna. I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm very excited about the conversation that we'll have today.
0: Wonderful. Deepika, you started with a bachelor in law and then a bunch of more degrees in law. But what's really interesting to me is that you pursued a master degree in space law way back in 2014 when it was... Uh, when the field of space law was still you know, quite new, even globally. Across internationally, also, it was quite new. So how did you, first of all, get to know about space law back then? And what made you pursue that?
1: I got into space law completely by accident. I really wanted to take a break from what I was uh, doing back in India. So I was looking at opportunities elsewhere. I really wanted to study more about human rights and And a bunch of other uh, technology laws, and I came across space law through a judge that I met he he was an arbitrator and um, while we were talking about a case that we were we were discussing, he said, "Ah oh, you should think about uh, this case was about an aviation club so the judge that I met he said, "Okay, if you are this interested in." in this topic of aviation and things, you should consider doing an LLM in aviation and space law. And I'd never heard about that until then. And he said, uh, oh, there's this place in the Netherlands called Leiden, which specializes in space law. So consider that. Absolutely no clue where this place was. I didn't get into the universities that I uh, wanted to for my human rights program. So I uh, picked Leiden as my uh, backup choice. Having said that, I was still very much interested in learning about space law because i had already done a master's in international uh, public international law. And my thesis in the first LLM was about the application of public international law to the field of uh, cyber law and how that could bring in some of the elements of space. When I read, okay, uh, there is an entire field of space law that is open for, for studying, I was, I was like, okay, this is, this is where I need to go now. So that's, that's a bit about my entry into uh, space law.
0: Good to know that the space bug is as effective in non-engineering and other <laughs> aspects of space as well. That's, that's great to know. After your space law master... Did you face any challenges in getting into the space industry? Because space was and still is actually quite dominated by engineers, right? And so did you have to do any additional technical or bridge courses to smoothen your transition? Or how did that happen?
1: I think the fact that I had the the advanced LLM degree from uh, Leiden University, was was already something that would open doors for me. So while it can open doors, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it gets me an opportunity for an interview or a guaranteed position at work. So I didn't have to do bridge courses, but it was a challenge for me to find a job in the industry. I was actually thinking about coming back to India. I didn't have any plans to work in Europe because I knew the challenge it was for a person with an Indian passport to get a job into this, this highly technical uh, industry. I got into Airbus as well out of, I, I think it it was two things in play. I did my internship there and the internship was not related to space law at all. It I had to think about markets and uh, economics and so on. And the managers and supervisors I interacted with during the internship were, were quite impressed with the work. And they said, well, if there is an opening, we'll come back to you. And six months later, I was I was invited to apply for a position, but I had to go through the same things where, where I was pitched against so many other people who probably had enough experience working in the uh, space industry. But I thought in, in some ways, the people who hired me took a bet bringing me in, saying, OK, you don't have any experience working in the industry, but there's some potential based on my past experience and my knowledge of space law and things. So so that's how I, I actually got into the industry itself. He like said not without its challenges.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can only imagine because the area, the legal space itself is like quite... Confidential aspect of space, right? So having a non-European to get in is that's quite a feat. So actually, I did a two-year professional master, you know, few years ago. Nothing very in-depth, but more to gain a legal vantage point. And my engineer friends would ask me for if I was training to prosecute aliens.
1: (laughs) Common, the most common question.
0: (laughs) Oh, really? Okay,
1: (laughs) that's what space lawyers do. You have to deal with aliens.
0: okay that's good to know so my friends were not weird
1: (laughs) no no, not at all
0: okay so space law as a career path is so unheard of right so can you talk about maybe what exactly it is that space lawyers do and what part of the space value chain do you operate in
1: so space lawyers according to me I, i i say they're not they're not too special space lawyers are lawyers first before anything else. What's interesting about this community within space is that they are quite closely knit and they work on a spectrum of different things. So these are lawyers who could be academicians just doing a lot of research, supporting governments or organizations with policy, what sort of national laws you can draft or international diplomatic efforts you can put in and so on. There are regulators who work with, again, with the intergovernmental organizations, probably with other agencies within national governments itself and so on. And I identify myself as a person who works in this comparatively larger piece in the space field, that is the industry. So these uh, space lawyers can be, uh, like me, commercial contracts people, just legal counsels providing business and strategic advice people who support the financial market. So whether it's uh, dealing with investor relations, thinking about uh, insurance and taxation, cross-border treaties and so on. Uh, And then there are also people who focus on uh, some of the, let's say, A little more technical aspects uh, of law so thinking about export compliance about IP and things like that so there's a really wide variety of jobs a lawyer can do I would simply say as a lawyer you're thinking about how the things that you've learned how you bring your experiences into the space industry so this for me uh, is what constitutes this persona of a space lawyer
0: okay wow So it's in addition to prosecuting aliens, you mean?
1: Yes, in addition to prosecuting aliens. At some point, yes, I I hope I live to see that.
0: So so when you say you focus on a particular field like IP or, you know, the others, does the person first have some kind of an IP law? You know, they do an IP law degree and then do a space law uh, course and then, you know, get into space. Like, should they have worked on IP aspects before they pursue space law in IP?
1: I think what's what's interesting is that I, I'm just thinking about the different people that I've met who deal with IP in the space industry. And they all have different trajectories. So, of course, it helps that you have a very strong background dealing with uh, intellectual properties, either at a national or an international level or that you understand the concepts well behind it, and then you get into this field. Of course, that's, that's a huge advantage. What you also notice in the space industry is, is often it's the technical engineers who who play the role of a a patent uh, advocate. So then they bring in a lot more about the technical knowledge into how they assess or uh, value uh, an intellectual property. And on another side, you have people who deal only with uh, IP as an asset. So you're only thinking about the financial side of it. How can you leverage that into your uh, business? How can you leverage that into your contract negotiations and so on? So I think what really matters in this industry is more the subject matter expertise rather than the track that you choose. So it's, it's multiple paths leading you to the same goal.
0: Oh, wow. That, that's interesting. So it's equally possible for a lawyer to become a space lawyer and an engineer to also become a space lawyer. Yes. Yes, of course. Wow. Wonderful. That, that's great. But do the engineers, because they're not really, they've never really, uh, you know, worked in a court, they've never really dealt with commercial or civil cases and, you know, all the legal, uh, all the legal jargon or the parlance or everything. So what kind of challenges do you think engineers might, might face? Like, do they have to do a bachelor kind of course, you know, the LLB or an equivalent kind of a law course, pass the bar exam and then get into space law? Or can they just dive in?
1: Um, If the focus is purely on space law, personally, I think it's important that you have a good background, a sound knowledge of public international law or of uh, other uh, comparative legal systems. What happens is an engineer comes from a certain way of learning and processing things their mind works in a certain way and it's the same for lawyers so if you need if you want to excel in in understanding space law if you want to come up with these great proposals and things i think it's important that you have some sort of well not necessarily a degree but good background knowledge in what those concepts mean what is the legal jurisprudence like how how do we understand legal history why do these crazy space lawyers spend years and years discussing the definition of space object, for example. Why is it important? If I'm talking about these definitional issues to an engineer, the first question they would ask is, but why Why do you people spend so much time? You can You can just, you know, come up with a draft, agree on these things and then get it done. But that's not how lawyers think. You think about, oh, what could this mean? What could this be interpreted as? What sort of uh, cultural uh, reference do we bring in to this uh, interpretation? And how do we future-proof this? Exactly, exactly. I, I don't fully agree to the word future-proof, but, but yes, to, to at least make it dynamic enough to last a certain generation. Having said that, I think engineers also bring a fresh perspective into how we uh, analyze laws because lawyers can get stuck in these blinders where we are only focusing on the things that we know. For example, I could be talking about IP for hours and hours in a contract negotiation. But if an engineer tells me this is what this component means, this is what it can do. And I, I don't really care if this other party is going to deal with it in a different way. It finishes the discussion there. That's it. The negotiations are done. You don't have to go into protracted discussions on what it means to split rights and things like that. So I think what this industry does is that it puts together these people with amazing perspectives and it uh, helps them build this mission. So I think both engineers, lawyers and, and people from other sides they all bring in a perspective that's necessary to get any work done, whether it's purely technical or purely legal, it doesn't matter. It has to be multi-stakeholder, it also has to be multi-perspectives in in how this brings to work. So, yeah.
0: Speaking of your work, you manage contracts and bids at Airbus. So how is contracting different or similar in space compared to other sectors or
1: other technology sectors? So contracts for uh, the space industry. They're not too different from the contracts in uh, other industries. I think if you think about the oil and gas industry or the high tech industry, uh, it's quite comparable to uh, what we do in the space industry. But the space industry has this unique environment where you have to deal with space projects which are complex. So your contracts are not only about looking at risks in the document, but also how you cover the risks in the project in in the document that you're uh, managing. The value chains, the supply chains in space are are quite long. So the way space contracts are different is how we bring the complexity of the space projects, how we manage that into uh, the commercial contracts that we have. But having said that, I think space industry contracts also have some uh, specialities. They have to deal with the technical nature of uh, space. So I think in, in the contract structure itself, the technical provisions, they figure quite high. So and these can relate to the sort of authorizations or certifications that you need, what reporting mechanisms are there. As a space engineer might know, you, you rely on so much documentation. So So what sort of processes uh, do you have to deal with in managing this documentation? What sort of liability mechanisms do you put in? What sort of dispute settlement uh, mechanisms you put in? And there are, of course, peculiarities like uh, obsolescence. So you're building a space mission that will probably reach the planet or asteroid which is its target in 20 years time so how do you deal with technology and the supplies which could probably be obsolete by by the time uh, your mission hits how do you deal with warranty for things that you launch into space i mean you can't you can't say well okay let me do a repair and replacement in space of course the hubble telescope is a is a speciality but for the rest how do you deal with that and what happens if we don't get enough funding for a project what is the impact of terminating something that we do and of course you you also have the much more interesting things like okay how do we deal with export compliance how do you deal with the investor relations and things like that so so there are there are some elements which are very specific or which rank much higher in the space industry. But from a purely legal contractual law perspective, I think it's it's comparable to the other industries.
0: I think I just knew the tip of the iceberg and I just got like a sneak peek at what's underneath. Wow. And you just mentioned investor relations, right? So how does contracting
1: and investor relations, can you talk about this perhaps? So may- maybe the the investor uh, relations part, they probably matter more when you are talking about bilateral investment treaties, the sort of uh, things that they impose on certain relationships. For example, some of these treaties between that are just between uh, countries, they require something called a fair and equitable treatment. And if you look at some of these publicly available arbitration cases, then you notice that between, let's say, state-related entities, so not really governments, but then entities that are controlled or operated or audited by the government, when these entities go into an arbitration with another private actor or with another state, you have elements of these bilateral investment treaties come in. What sort of provisions do you deal with there? What sort of dispute settlement uh, mechanisms are preferred? Which to which countries' laws do you do you present yourself to? What is the jurisdiction there? So I, I think those are also. Elements which will probably be picked up more now, considering that you have a lot more private actors and you don't just have investors from the same country investing. There is a cross-border element that is brought in, so which also triggers, OK, what sort of dispute settlement mechanisms are we going to build into contracts and so on?
0: Wow, interesting. So uh, just one last point about the contracts. How are contracts, how do they differ between crewed and robotic missions? Is there a difference?
1: So I haven't really worked on a specific crewed contract. So what I'm going to say is is just my observation from things that you see. Usually, if you you look at NASA as an example, they focus more on the safety requirements for crewed missions. So so there's uh, you have the standard uh, space contracts that have many of these elements about termination about certifications authorizations and so on but the element of safety has an overriding importance there in some of these uh, NASA contracts for example the commercial crew transportation i think capability contract or yeah one of these uh, long names you would see that it it specifically mentions that um, NASA's requirements of safety in transporting their crew to and from the International Space Station, they need to be uh, met. In the case of transporting to ISS, you have to also adhere to the requirements and standards that are prescribed by the uh, ISS agreements and and, and things that have come after that. Sometimes uh, you see that in these uh, NASA commercial crew contracts, the party that wins the contract is also asked to perform certain special studies for how they can reduce risks related to crew transportation. So uh, this is the key element that you can say distinguishes uh, things between crude and robotic missions. Of course, in future, I think there's, there's a lot that we would probably have to uh, deal with. What sort of robots are you deploying? How do you deal with malfunctioning? Or if there is an artificial intelligence element, how do we assign uh, responsibility and liability? And so there are so many things that could come up. But at this stage, it's still, it's not as exciting as it could be in the near term.
0: Wow. I mean, I never thought of this uh, AI in space alongside humans. Wow. That's going to be like super fun times for space lawyers, I guess. Wow. Really excited. Yeah. So you've also mentioned arbitration, right? So that takes me to all these alternate dispute resolution methods. And there's a lot of other legal instruments as well. Do they work differently for space?
1: If you look at the setting for dispute settlements in space, space laws are not uh, the space treaties or space laws in general under national laws and things. They are not automatically enforced. You can't simply just go to a court and say, "Okay, this party has violated a right and we need a judgment from here. The international space law treaties themselves, they don't have a binding dispute settlement mechanism built into them. And during the discussions, I think it was also intentional because a lot of the countries were reluctant to a compulsory jurisdiction under an uh, international tribunal. Yet, because the Outer Space Treaty also says that uh, you can rely on the UN Charter, there are elements of uh, dispute settlement mechanisms that you can borrow from public international law but unfortunately this is not something that is available to commercial private space actors and i think this is where uh, you have a lot of questions about okay what is the most uh, suitable uh, dispute settlement mechanism and arbitration comes comes up on top as as one of the things that that has well established mechanisms the processes are quite clear so this is something that you choose you notice often in a lot of uh, space multilateral agreements and treaties as well that arbitration is preferred so if you look at the international telecommunication union agreement the iss agreement or even the preferred mode by uh, the european space agency for its contracts it is international arbitration i think it works quite well because one, it is final and binding between the parties who submit to it. There is the element of consent from the parties. It, it also somehow symbolizes their autonomy to choose the arbitrators, to pick people who are experts in the field to discuss this and so on. So I think definitely arbitration is a mode. There is a well-established mechanism on different fronts i think for arbitration so if for example if you look at interstate disputes or or investor sorry investor state disputes then it's easier to submit to a mechanism that already exists right so so they know exactly how to deal with the with these treaties there are examples of of space cases that have been submitted to these authorities you have one case by uh, umetsat uh, against uh, mexico You have the Davis and uh, Antrix deal as well. So I I think the mechanisms, they work well. There are quite a lot of people who say, ah, we need to think about new dispute settlement mechanisms for space. I think if they are bound by contracts, if they are uh, well-placed within the regimes that we already have, there is enough to do with what exists. I think there was also a statement that was once made by uh, Bakken, Bakken Stegel, if, if I pronounce his name right. He said the, the, only thing that may, the only thing that may be wanting is that the current arbitration market can probably work more to develop capacity in dealing with space disputes. Right. So so dealing with the technical nature of it, with the specific uh, commercial parts of it and so on. So I I would say arbitration is a a great, great choice for the space industry. Uh, And one more important point is in 2011, the Permanent Court of Arbitration they adopted these optional rules for arbitration for disputes that relate to outer space activities. And this is quite a significant development in in the whole body of space law itself, because it it sort of provides this voluntary binding dispute settlement method, which is accessible to all space actors. And the rules are also modeled on specific uh, legal and economic characteristic of uh, space activity uh, activities. so which means you can you can submit a dispute into this uh, body with the confidence that they, they know they will know uh, what the case is about. there will be confidentiality around it and, and so on so.
0: Wow, okay. So since you mentioned the outer space treaty and all these uh, other treaties, Right. So if you look at them historically, each of these treaties, be it the uh, OST or the Rescue Agreement or the Liability Convention, so on and so forth. So all of them kind of evolved alongside space technology. They were always kind of trying to catch up from the 50s, 60s. And now there is a lot of discussion across the world calling for better space traffic management or not better space traffic management because we don't really have something like that. There's a lot of discussion around it calling for space traffic management, which is effective and efficient as much as the current day air traffic control, let's say. But it is yet to be seen whether this kind of uh, management would be spearheaded by nation states or given the increasing commercial activity, maybe by some sort of a private public consortium of sorts.
1: So how do you think space law would evolve in both of these scenarios? So the challenge of space traffic management that, that is looming, there is a sense of urgency. Uh, if you look at the discussions that we have at an international, national, or, or even at, a, at an event level, you, you understand the urgency of having space traffic management. But I don't think the answer is very black and white. Because if we have to look at the way air traffic management has evolved, although that has been around for decades now, there are still so many new developments that happened. So air traffic management, that includes a lot of elements, right? So air traffic management includes air traffic control. It includes services. It includes the idea of just management. It includes the idea of, flow and capacity management from a technical side, and so on. So to think about space traffic management as a unitary thing that we do is, in my opinion, oversimplifying it. And the way ad traffic management is done is also fragmented in some parts. So you see in India, for example, you have the Airports Authority of India that's That's predominantly responsible for it, but they are answerable to the Ministry of uh, Civil Aviation, but also to the Indian Air Force in in, in some ways. It's still governmental with even a touch of military, if we can say that. But if you look at Europe, they have Eurocontrol, which is working on having a single European sky on things where you look into seamless traffic between uh, the different uh, countries here. But you also have national regimes Germany is quite different because uh, Germany has an air traffic control mechanism where it is corporatized. It's still the government, but it is corporatized. They charge user fees as a business model. So they are able to uh, implement changes and updates probably much faster than the way uh, the Indian authorities would work, which which are still predominantly government controlled. And if you can compare that to another extreme in, in Canada, you have something called Nav Canada which is a private non-profit organization. They sort of work with airlines based on uh, capacity, like the the weight that they carry and the distance that they fly. So they work in a different way, although they they all render the same services. Like a pay-per-use kind of a model. Exactly, exactly. So... So if you if you come back to space traffic management, I think there's a lot that needs to be done, as, as, as anybody would say. And personally, I imagine it would somehow follow the lines of uh, air traffic management, that uh, different functionalities are allocated to agencies that have the capacity and the expertise to do it. And this is probably a blend between, let's say, public entities and private entities. And I think the fact that in space you already see a good interaction between these different stakeholders, uh, it could probably be much faster than in the uh, aviation field as well, where you could maybe have better cooperation amongst these entities and so on. I think one good example is that there is a Horizon 2020 project for the European space traffic management, I think it's 18 or uh, 19 entities. So it's it's different institutions, it's private companies, it's, it's public bodies as well. So I think that is a very good representation of what the future would look like, because you have all these stakeholders who all have different interests in space and you have to find a point of intersectionality and say, okay, this is the goal that we want to achieve. These are the capabilities that these parties are good at. And this is how we allocate the responsibilities. So I imagine that it will be a complex arrangement of contracts in the end that will uh, somehow lead to a solution for space traffic management.
0: That sounds very hopeful and also very interesting, actually, to, to look forward to. The next point I wanted to ask you was, I think we touched about, upon it a little bit. I mean, you have touched upon it a little bit. So to pursue a career as a space lawyer, is it only for lawyers, you know, with law degree and law background or can non-lawyers also do this? I mean, you did kind of answer that both of them can get into it. But can you perhaps elaborate on what path each of these people can take to get into space law, lawyers as well as non-lawyers, let's say, not engineers, but non-lawyers?
1: Okay, so obviously for lawyers, the options are wide open because you can, you can choose any of the paths ranging from policy, research, uh, regulatory industry to working for organizations. It's, it's, it's just an amazing uh, array of options that you have. For non-lawyers, the term space lawyer is so wide that it could be so many things, right? So for a non-lawyer, if you have to become a commercial contracts officer, for example, I think that is still possible. If you understand the logic of how contracts work, then uh, as a non-lawyer, you can still probably put in the same amount of expertise and knowledge as as a lawyer would do. I think over time you would also get used to the way the industry works for for example some of my mentors for the commercial contracting work that I do are people who don't have a law background per se they've just been in the industry for so long they understand the impact of the relationships the the behavior patterns that are needed to execute a certain project and I think it's it's also understanding the risks and and what it means for a relationship or the sort of impact that it will have on your financial mechanisms at least for commercial contracts it's not necessary that you need to have this extensive legal background you can you can still be an engineer you can you can be a person from finance who comes in who gets thrown into the let's say the the storm who learns and then yeah you can you can still survive However, I am, again, personally, I think if you are going to focus on policymaking and, and working on what future space law and things should be like, I think it's important that you have, uh, one, an open mind where you're willing to take in different perspectives, uh, sometimes even opposing perspectives. That's really important. And two, understanding legal history and evolution and how you can apply this to space law. Because a gripe that I have with some space lawyers is that they have these blinders and they only think about, oh, these international space law treaties and, and so on. But they don't think about, for example, okay, what what have we done with international environmental law so far? What is the impact of uh, cyber laws on, on space law? I think it's important that they have this backing where they are able to analyze space law from other perspectives whether it's technical whether it's other legal perspectives or not I think it's it's quite important if you want to be this pure space lawyer so you're not uh, you're you're discussing the, the if you're discussing the future I think I think that's quite important.
0: Most of the space activity in the world is focused in the US and then in Europe and then you know Australia a little bit and then so on and so forth in other countries. So are opportunities for space lawyers or to pursue space law as a full-time career, are the number of opportunities also proportionate to the amount of space activity?
1: Yes and no. So if we are talking from purely industry perspective, if you really want to work in the space industry, it's probably uh, proportionate to the geography where these activities are happening, right? So considering that when in, in India for... for Just to go back a bit, when I finished uh, the space law studies at Leiden and I was thinking about the opportunities that I may have in India, a senior uh, space lawyer advised, don't come back, stay where you are, try to get a job where you are. That that was the advice that I got. But things and, and times change. So the fact now that in India, they are more open to having a private industry come up in space activities as well. I think that opens up quite a lot of things. It's it's already a lot more options compared to what I had in, in 2015. So uh, things are definitely changing if, if you think about it from an industry perspective. If you are going to do uh, research, if you are going to engage in diplomacy, international relations and so on, I don't think the activities in your country per se should stop you from doing those things. Because I, I, I wonder sometimes why not enough people from, let's say, the global south of, of the space industry, why, why do the space lawyers from these countries, why do they not uh, speak up? They don't necessarily have to take a national or a government position but to just have the conversation uh, going. Because, for, for example, the relationship that India has with space is way different from the relationship that, that Europe or US has with space. As a lot of your uh, audience might also know, the, the Indian Space Agency was one of the first agencies to purely focus on a civilian uh, perspective.
0: Yeah, it's the first space agency to not have military motivations to emerge yeah
1: that adds uh, if you if you look back at the history that adds a lot of value to how we approach space and then there are of course other countries where they have a more more cultural aspect to space as well and i think then it's it's important that we talk about what it means to have these space activities what it means to to think about uh, future laws in space We say space is for all, but if you look at the percentage of activities, is it really for all? And then if we are thinking about it from a legal perspective, is it really uh, universal laws that we are applying? How do we bring this element of universality into laws if we are only talking about, well, okay, let's, let's start with laws that are defined by actors in space now. So can we 10 years from now say, well, this was a universal law? I think in some ways, the Outer Space Treaty, I I, I remember hearing from a friend that the Outer Space Treaty is basically a contract between US and USSR, which has, because of the dynamic nature, because it not really future-proof, it was incomplete in some ways. Because it was incomplete in some ways, it has lasted this long. The principles have become universal. But there are also a lot of contradictions in it. And if you go into the history of the making of Outer Space Treaty, you also see that uh, different countries have expressed uh, different reservations. So do we have to revisit these positions now? Do we have to go back to why we originally did things the way we did? So I I think there's there's a lot to think about. and, And there's definitely a huge role that space lawyers and also people from uh, non-law backgrounds like, like historians or international relations experts, uh, sociologists can play in how future laws and future behavior in space is regulated. I think even in space law, there's, there's enough space for all.
0: So if space enthusiasts or young professionals want to reach
1: out to you, what's the best way to do so? linkedin i'm probably a bit late with the replies but i i always make it a point to respond no matter how silly a question is um you could also reach out to me in my uh, email but i don't know how to provide that uh, i i will leave it in the description no worries yeah that's uh, that's fine
0: so ah uh, thank you thank you so much for your time it's been a super fun conversation and there's so much more to space law that i have no clue about I
1: think there's something uh, useful in it.
0: Oh, it's it's very, very interesting. I mean, even for me personally, maybe I can put this in as, uh, you know, in my list of backup options to pursue in case I ever get bored of being an engineer. Of course. <laughs> Sounds exciting. So thank you so much for your time and really looking forward to meeting you in person, hopefully at the Bremen Space Tech Expo. Yes,
1: I have fingers crossed. I hope I, I, I come to uh, that event at least, yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess all of us are going to attend all the space events for the next four years.
1: As a last uh, note, I think I I had so much fun talking about these things. Of course, there's a lot more where it comes from, but it's so awesome to be on your podcast. I'm having a fangirl moment, if if I may. So I'm super happy that I'll be one of the speakers as well. I hope you have many, many more uh, interesting discussions with those awesome space people.
0: Oh, that's I love that. I love that tagline. <laughs> Thank you so much. You are very kind, and I'm very, very flattered. I think I've flattered enough. I've got my early birthday gift and Christmas gift and everything. <laughs> I'm very flattered. Thank you. You're so kind.
1: Great. Okay.